Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. Thank you for joining us for episode 42, which we all know is an important number because it was Jackie Robinson's shirt number. This week, we're going to be discussing the philosophy of stealth, why it needs a little bit more attention than maybe it's getting, and we're going to talk about how you can download maps so you can still navigate when you lose cell phone signal, and we'll talk about a hole in the ground that's filled with rocks, because why not? Thank you very much for listening. I am very happy to have you back here with me once again for this episode 42, and yeah, I could, just couldn't make the plain old Douglas Adams joke. I had to find a new meaning, and hey... Jackie Robinson, important character in history. Number 42 is his shirt. I think it's worth mentioning. So there you go. Now, I have seen a lot of folks online lately talking about stealth. Now, you might be tired of hearing about stealth and the concept of stealth and stealth fans, but hear me out here because I think there's an important point that folks are missing about stealth. Lately online, I have been seeing a lot of posts about how stealth is a myth that it's pointless, that everybody knows you're sleeping in your van and it makes no sense at all to try to hide it. Go ahead and install your vents, put your big camper graphics on the side of your van and just admit to the world what you're doing. You're out there on the road, living the van life and you're not ashamed of it. And I am totally fine with all of that. But it misses the entire point of stealth. It seems like folks seem to think that stealth means that you're going to be invisible. You know, it's like you're, you're a stealth fighter and radar can't see you and you don't exist so you can do whatever you want. And that is entirely not the point. Think about this. Think about the concept of camouflage. Camouflage doesn't make you invisible. It makes you blend in. I mean, most camouflage, like oaky moss or whatever, mossy oak, I don't know what it's called. I don't, I don't wear this stuff, but it looks like leaves. It looks like where it's going to be used. And that, I think, is more what stealth is about for vans. You are not trying to be invisible. You are trying to be ignorable. Because that's the point of stealth. It's to get people to leave you alone. It's to make it so that people walk by your van and don't see you and don't care. Now, my van is very much like that. When I originally started building this thing, I wanted to go stealth. And I, I thought stealth meant you had to make your van look like a work vehicle. So I, I had graphics made that advertised a fake company on the side and all that kind of stuff. And then I realized that that isn't actually the greatest approach because you don't want anything memorable to be on the van. And a business name is memorable. Someone might see that business name and wonder what that business was. Vanity plates, also memorable. And actually, your state, if your license plate has its state prominently displayed, that also can be memorable. In my van, I have license plate brackets that kind of obscure the state. In fact, you can't actually see the state on my license plates. It just says Land of Lincoln at the bottom, which in and of itself might be memorable, but hey, what can I do? Stealth is about being ignorable. And yes, I fully admit that if someone is looking for a stealth van, they're probably going to find you. But the only people doing that are other van people. People generally aren't driving around looking to see, hmm, is that a stealth van? Somebody's sleeping in there. I'm going to go get them. That, that isn't what happens. 
we have a, a skewed view because we drive around and we see vans. And we're like, hmm, I wonder if somebody's sleeping in that van. Or oh, look, there's a Max Air fan on the back. That's a stealth camper van. That's just us. That's us doing that. The rest of the world does not care if your van is a carpet van or a plumber or if you're living in it. The secret is to just not be memorable. But you might ask, why? Why would you care? I mean, why not just advertise what you are? You like the color pink and you want to put pink stripes on your van? That's totally fine. But you are giving up a few of the advantages of stealth, and that is why stealth is worth your consideration. And the basic advantage of stealth is that it increases your parking options. There are places that have ordinances against RVs parking on the street. In some places, you can't even park them in your driveway. Basically, if you have an RV visible, it is against the covenants of the community. I'm not even going to get into HOAs and all that. But a van is often allowed. In that case, you have more parking options simply because you're not easily identified as an RV. In other cases... If you're ignorable, people aren't going to mess with you. And if you follow the good practices of stealth camping, which is only sleep where you park for your night, do everything else at another spot, and don't stay too long in the same space. I mean, ideally, you would move to a different spot every night. If you do that and your vehicle is ignorable, you can go anywhere and do anything you want, or at least you'll have the most options. That's what stealth is about. And again, I will emphasize one more time, you do not need to do stealth. If you don't care about any of that, if you're always going to stay at campgrounds, or you want to be loud and proud and say, I built this thing and I'm proud of it, so Jeff's van is going to be right on the side of it, great, fine, just know what it is. And if you're one of those folks that's posting online that stealth is silly and it's a myth and you should ignore it, Please don't, because you're, you're missing a point here that this is a valuable thing for some folks, including myself. I really like the fact that when my van is parked, it's ignorable. Nobody sees it. And I've often done this with folks who've wanted to see my van, is I will park it on the street and say, okay, which one is it? And not once has anyone been able to figure out, oh, that's your stealth camper van right there, because it blends in. Anyway. Know what stealth is and decide whether you want to do it or not. But if you do decide to do it, keep in mind that there are a couple of costs for stealth. And you may or may not want to pay them. The first, as I've just mentioned several times now, is personal expression. If you want to decorate the outside of your van, you're taking away from stealth value. So if you want to be fully stealth or as stealth as you can be, or as ignorable as you can be, I mean, really, that's the word we should be using. You can't really put your own graphics on the side. Also, stealth interferes with comfort. And by that I mean that everything you add to your van that sticks out on the outside of the van, like vents or maybe an air conditioner or a shore power outlet cover hole thingy, a hot water heater vent, any of that stuff, it gives away the fact that you're a camper. And you have to decide whether, boy, do I really want that max air vent or do I really want to be stealth? Because there is a trade-off there. Now, I'd argue that roof vents don't attract all that much attention, except to the van life folks. But hey, just know what you're getting into. And that's kind of the theme for the show here. I mean, I'm 
<laughs> I want you guys to know what you're getting into. That's all. And you make your own decisions. Any recommendation I have is just based on information. I have different criteria than you might have. So please base your decisions based on the information. That's all I'm saying. As far as stealth goes, if you have a stealth camper, good for you. And if you have a van that you've made into a super RV and it has amazing graphics on the side, good for you. Neither of these things is good or bad. It's just about what you want to do and how you want to do van life. Tech Talk. So if you are a newbie to van life and you have gone out there to explore the world, you may have discovered that your GPS software stops working if you don't have cell signal. It's gotten better. It used to be that as soon as you left cell signal, your GPS would go blank and you would lose everything. But apps have gotten smarter now, and it seems like most of them, and I use mostly, I use Apple Maps because it's built in, it's easy. I use Google Maps, and I use Waze. It seems like all of them now, once you program a route, will download all the maps needed for the route. And if you lose cell phone signal, it's okay, it'll still get you there. But if you don't know this, this is a very good tip that will prevent you from ever, ever getting lost because your GPS stopped working because of cell signal. And that is that you can download the maps yourself. You can force them to download. So I'm going to talk specifically about Google Maps here because that's the one that everybody can use, basically. Google Maps has an option where you can tell it to download a region of any size. You can download an entire state. You can download like a state park or whatever. What I typically do is when I plan a trip, I will download all the maps for all the places I'm likely to go plus a hundred miles or so. So for my trip to North Dakota, I downloaded all of North Dakota, all of South Dakota, all of Minnesota, all of Wisconsin, and all of Iowa. I already think Illinois is in there. I wasn't too worried about that. And what this meant was that no matter what, I would have the ability to navigate home. I mean, that was basically the thing. If I suddenly changed my trip and wanted to go to Montana, I might have been in trouble. But had I done that, I would have waited till I had cell phone signal and then downloaded Montana. Of course, I'm always going to recommend that you have a paper map with you. I have an atlas, you know, one of those big, huge books that has a map of every state in the country, and I will always be able to use that to get basically where I want to go. I also have a digital version of that on my cell phone. So I have a lot of maps. These are good things. But what I've noticed is that I grew up using maps. I mean, honestly, that was all I had. GPS didn't come out until I was well into adulthood. And I had delivery jobs where I had to rely on maps to figure out where I was going. Reading a map is second nature to me. But it seems like for a lot of young folks who have grown up with GPS, which kind of blows my mind, the idea of reading a map is a little bit foreign. So we have this GPS technology, why don't we use it as much as we possibly can? Tales from the road. So way back in 1988, I decided to move across the country from Massachusetts to Salt Lake City, Utah. Quite, quite a change there. And I had never driven across country before. I, mean, I had driven from Florida to Massachusetts and, you know, West Virginia, where I went to school, to Massachusetts several times. I had been on long drives, but I'd never driven across the country. And so I was in a caravan. There were three vehicles, and I was driving a little Toyota Mini Cruiser RV, which is what we were using to sleep in. 
and I think it was the second night we made it to Iowa, uh, just outside Davenport, uh, which is Four Corners. Now, I'd never been to Iowa before, and I'm actually glad to live somewhat near Iowa because I quite like Iowa. Iowa is a beautiful state to drive through, and there's a lot of interesting stuff to see there. But my first time there, I had a little bit of a freakout. We pulled into the campground, and I got out of the RV, and I looked around, and I could see the horizon for 360 degrees. This is an experience I had only had at sea up to this point. I had never been somewhere so flat that I could look around and see in all directions. There were no tall trees, no tall buildings, no mountains, nothing in the way between me and the horizon and the sky, and it freaked me out. I instantly had this feeling of like I was vulnerable, there was no place to hide, oh my god, they can see me. It was just a strange, strange feeling. And then I found out it was a dry county, which was a completely foreign concept to me at the time, but we'll put that aside. Now, I related this experience to folks when I got to Salt Lake City, and the friends I had told me another story that was exactly the opposite. When they flew from Salt Lake to the east, they panicked because when they looked out the window, they saw this ocean of trees, and they thought there wasn't enough space for the plane to land. And when they were driving around, they always felt like they were driving in a tunnel because they couldn't see the horizon anywhere. And, and honestly, that's what it's like driving in the east. If you've never been to New England, most of the places you drive on interstates are basically carved out of forests, so there's tall trees on either side. And it had never occurred to me that where you grew up and what your experience was would totally change how these things felt. Where the Northeast feels comfortable to me, like I like the woods, the woods are my friends, they protect me. To somebody who grew up in the Southwest, they're oppressive and closing in on them and very discomforting. So if you're from an extreme place, such as the Southwest, which is extremely dry, or the Northeast, which is extremely forested, you can have some really interesting experiences seeing how the rest of the country is. And some of them might take a little getting used to. Okay, resource recommendation. This is a little bit odd one, and it's, it doesn't directly relate to van life. I recently shot a lot of video for the Choose the Adventure trip I took, geez, I guess about two weeks ago now. And because I knew I was going to be shooting a lot of video, I did some research into how I wanted to do it. Like, you know, which camera am I going to use? I've got the GoPros, I've got the Sony a6000 and blah, blah, blah. And the more and more I looked at it, the more and more I realized that the iPhone was actually the best option because I was in the van. It was the simplest to deal with. It had the easiest way to deal with recharging and all the files were going to be right there. I didn't have to mess around with SD cards or any of that. Now, iPhones and Android phones, this is not a pro-iPhone thing, have excellent stabilization these days, but it's only excellent. It's not perfect. So I started doing a little bit of research on how to make that better, and I came across this thing called the Smooth 4. It is a gimbal. Now, if you're not familiar with the term gimbal, it is something that moves on several axes to smooth out videography. All major movies you've ever seen have been filmed with these things, unless they're handheld, which was very popular a while ago, and I'm glad it's less popular now, because it makes shaky things. 
Gimbals make it so that if you're walking, you can't tell because the gimbal absorbs all the movements that your body makes as you're walking. This thing is pretty amazing. What sold me on it was that not only did it smooth out the motions of your hand waving around, which all the gimbals do, it also put all the controls for recording on the thing that you hold in your hand, which is like a handle. It's like a tennis racket handle. Like you can start and stop recording, and there's a zoom wheel so you can zoom in and out, you can adjust focus, you can change a whole bunch of things just from the handle so you don't have to touch your screen. And to me that's super important because I find it very hard to see my screen when I'm photographing outside. So this Zoom 4 thing has been amazing. It has totally changed how I view my iPhone as a camera, and it has opened up all new worlds. And it works really well. And it comes with software. The software is called ZY Play. And basically how it works is that when you record with this thing, it saves it all in ZY Play. And then you can edit it there, or you can just save it to your photo roll, and then you can use whatever software you want. The experience is really very very good. I did have some problems with it. I had some sticking buttons. But if you're looking at a gimbal, if you're looking at a way to shoot better quality video while you're out in the wild, definitely give the Smooth 4 a look. I'll have a link in the show notes. It's only 99 bucks, which for camera accessories, I think is a real... I, honestly, I think this thing is a bargain. I would have paid significantly more for a gimbal. The battery life is great. A one charge will last you all day. I will point out a flaw that it has, though, and I'm still struggling with this. The way you mount this thing to the gimbal blocks the power port on your iPhone, so you can't give it power while you're using it. But that's not the important part. The important part is that you also can't attach a microphone. And while the iPhone's microphones are excellent, they do nothing for wind. And if you're out in the wind with this thing, all your stuff is going to be windy. So that's a problem to solve. There's some ways you can solve it with adapters and stuff, or you can have a separate microphone. You could wear a lav, for example, and then have that record to a separate device, like a Zoom H4 or something like that. But it is a problem, and I hope that a future version, hey, maybe the Smooth 5, will simply have a hole drilled through the gimbal so you can attach things to the PowerPoint. Anyway, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, check the show notes. There'll be a link to the product there and some videos. And this is a great thing for a semi-amateur photographer who simply wants to take better shots and have a lot more convenience. A place to visit. This is a very, very old state park that is called Purgatory Chasm. Because back in the day, people in New England especially, all across the country really, but people in New England really liked to name things after the devil and hell and all that kind of stuff. Purgatory Chasm is definitely one of them. But when you go there, you can see why they thought of this name. Purgatory Chasm is in Sutton, Massachusetts, which is south-central Massachusetts. It's right by the border with Connecticut. It's a very simple state park. You drive up and you park, and it, and it really just looks like a nice park. And then you walk down the trail a bit, and suddenly you are on a different planet. For whatever reason, probably due to glacial activity, I, I, there's some controversy about how this place was created. A small canyon opened up in the rock and was filled with boulders. I'm not talking about bowling ball-sized boulders here. We're talking about 
car-sized boulders. And they're all jumbled up in this canyon that's maybe a quarter mile long. And you can walk through there and climb up on these things and go around them. And they've got all kinds of fancy names like, of course, Fat Man's Misery and Coffin Rock and the Corn Crib and all this stuff. But it's a really interesting, nice place to go. Great for photography. You can take all kinds of interesting pictures with strange backdrops. And it's just a lovely place to spend an afternoon. So if you are exploring New England at all and you want to get out and see something unusual, Purgatory Chasm in Sutton, Massachusetts is well worth your visit. One caveat, though, the place has gotten popular And and this is true for all outdoorsy places during COVID. They've all gotten very popular because that's what people are doing these days. So they've increased the parking price to $20 if you have an out-of-state plate. I think that's a bit much. I can go to a lot of really interesting places for less than 20 bucks. But if you're in the area and you've got a few people with you, it's only 20 bucks. If you've got four people, that's five bucks a person. It is definitely worth doing. Just a reminder though, because of COVID, the bathrooms are closed, but you're gonna find that just about anywhere. So Purgatory Chasm in Sutton, Massachusetts, give it a look. A product review for you. Hey, so I was at the auto parts store and I found these little sponges that are covered with terry cloth. And they're actually for some sort of auto body work. They're a very smooth way to apply stuff. But when I saw them, I thought, boy, wouldn't that be a great thing for wiping off the windshield in the morning? Because, hey, it's going to happen. You are going to get condensation on the inside of your windshield, no matter how much ventilation you have, unless you live in the Southwest and you're spending your time in the desert. For the rest of us, it's a problem. And it's a problem every single morning. So, you know, you can wipe it off with paper towels or whatever. I just thought this handy little sponge covered with terry cloth might be the thing. And it, it actually has worked out pretty well. I got these at just the AutoZone, and they came in a pack of two. And in the morning, if I'm in a hurry to get out and I don't want the condensation to dry by itself, I will wipe it down with these things, and it takes 20 seconds, and then all the condensation is gone. And I keep it in the little console next to my chair, and I'm good to go. So I will have a link to these things in the show notes, but honestly, you can get them at any auto parts store, and they're just a little sponge covered with terry cloth. You can clean them if you want. They don't have to be cleaned every time you use them. And they're good at preventing that buildup, that if you let the condensation dry every morning, over time, you end up with this film on the windshield. This will cut right through that. In fact, you can actually just clean the inside of your windshield with these to some extent. It's not as good as the Windex and paper towel thing, but it's still pretty good. So give it a look. It's a sponge covered with terry cloth. (laughs) Not the most exciting thing in the world, but something that helps out just a little bit. Q&A. How do you remove spray foam? <laughs> spray foam. I could do a whole episode on spray foam. Spray foam is wonderful stuff in that it adheres to everything and it molds itself to the shape and it is has great R value. It's really good stuff. Unless it gets where you don't want it. And then it is the worst stuff ever. Spray foam is tough. It does not want to come off. And that's true of whatever it gets on. And actually, as, I, as it happens, I am wearing jeans that I wore while I was building my van. And on the knee is some spray foam 
that has been there for probably three dozen washes of these jeans. That spray foam is now a badge of honor that permanently lives on these jeans, and it is never coming off. And I saw a post recently that was a little bit sad that somebody had spray foamed the entire inside of their van and did an okay job, and they found out they're allergic to the spray foam. I don't know how that works. The spray foam doesn't actually give off any odors or anything. It doesn't seem like something people would be allergic to. But whatever, they need to remove it all, and uh, people have been suggesting to them that they buy a new van because it's that big of a job. So the answer on how to remove spray foam is two steps. The first step is physical. Rip it off. Scrape it off. Do whatever you can to remove as much physically. But no matter what you do, it's never going to release that base layer. There's going to be a part that is connected to the van. And the only way that I know to get that off is with a very liberal application of acetone, which is the main ingredient in nail polish remover. Acetone is flammable. Acetone gives off fumes. And you would need to use so much of it to remove all the spray foam from the van that I really think you should find another way to deal with the spray foam than trying to remove it all. So if you're in a situation where you put spray foam in the ceiling in some place and some drips down on the floor of the van and you want to remove it, that's fine. Get yourself a plastic scraper, scrape as much off as you can, and then a rag with some acetone and that'll clean that up and you'll be fine. But for large amounts, pretty much it's permanent. And you have to weigh that when you decide whether you're going to use spray foam or not. For me, I just use spray foam in very specific places that I couldn't reach with anything else. Cross ribs on the ceiling had little holes in them. I filled them with spray foam. So basically my ribs are filled with spray foam. And some places in the doors that I couldn't get, I filled with spray foam. I don't even know that it matters all that much because those areas are already filled with air. So that's a bit of an insulator to begin with. And I'm not stopping the thermal bridge because the metal wraps all around the foam and heat can go through the metal. But it helps with sound deadening, if nothing else, and it, it has to help with insulation. The thought of spraying it on the sides of the walls of the van, that sounds a little scary to me. And if I were going to go that route, I would go with a professional. Van Life News. This, this is going to be an interesting little bit of news here. Obviously, there's a lot going on right now in the U.S., and there's tons of news, and all of it is bad, it seems. But van life is growing so much that it is now being featured in the Washington Post. There was an article a couple weeks ago, How to Stay Warm and Safe Living the Van Life in Winter. And that's just striking, because van life is now such a common thing in the psyche of the world, that a major newspaper runs a feature on one specific aspect of van life. It used to be you'd hear all these articles about, these crazy millennials are leaving behind normal life and hitting the road to live their lives in a van down by the river, and now van life is just as normal as the plumbing in a house, and it's getting the same attention. The article doesn't actually have any news. It's just making news because it's in the news. So I think that's fascinating. And another piece of news in the Baltimore Sun, a gentleman by the name of Kirk Williams was an avid mountain biker, and he sadly broke his neck and became a paraplegic. And that was it. 
But no, it wasn't because he decided that he was still going to hit the road. And what he did was he built a camper van or with help, he had someone help him build it that allowed him to get out there in a van that was customized to him. And what he discovered was that it was easier and more comfortable for him to be in his van that was customized for him than to drive, say, a car and stay in hotels every night. Because he always had everything he needed with him, which is, I think, one of the biggest draws to the van life thing. So, hey, if Kirk Williams, a paraplegic, can make his van work for him, That really shows that van life is for anybody who wants to take the plunge. It can be modified to meet anyone's needs. Anyway, that article was in the Baltimore Sun. If you uh, search Baltimore Sun and Kirk Williams, it should come up. And one last little bit of news, the 2021 Promasters, which are arguably one of the best vans for converting, now get a whole lot of new safety features, which I think is something that's lacking in most vans. They now have blind spot monitoring, rear cross-path detection, forward collision warnings, and emergency brake assist, which is, you know, this is something that's fairly standard in luxury cars that's been around for five or ten years, but in vans, especially vans designed to be work vans, it's not that common. You can find it in some of the fancier vans, but in the Promaster, you couldn't. And I hope this is a trend that continues. I mean, just because it's a van shouldn't mean that it's not as comfortable as a car, after all. But the most notable new option is something called crosswind assist, which will help the van stay going straight if a big gust of wind hits it from the side. And that's something fairly unique to vans rather than cars, although my smart car got blown all over the road too. So, hey, good news. I hope more companies follow suit here. The more safety features we can get, and honestly, the more comfort features we can get, the better. Thank you very much for listening to this episode 42. Music, as always, is by Simon Wegg. We do have a Facebook group called Strangely Built to Go, a Facebook group, and it's starting to grow a little bit, but it's going to take time. So if you would like a non-judgmental place to ask your van life questions and to have input on the show as well, head on over to Facebook and join the group. And remember what Robert Louis Stevenson said, I travel not to go anywhere, but to go. I travel for travel's sake. The great affair is to move.